Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Jason Wright Show's best Friday ever. How you doing? I hope everyone has had a killer week. It has been a busy week around Texas Titan Media, I can tell you that. Uh, some great interviews this week. I just uh, wrapped an interview yesterday with Kristen Limbaugh-Bloom and her dad, David Limbaugh, who have a new book out right now called The Resurrected Jesus. Why is my microphone's kind of fading in and out? That gets on my nerves so bad when it does that. Um, and it is, it's a great book. The interview was fantastic. Uh, I, they are just, you know, David Limbaugh is, first of all, he's wicked smart, as is his daughter, Kristen. Had a lot of fun with that. And then had a conversation with James Barry, who is the founder of Pluck Seasonings. It is a company that makes, I mean, killer, delicious, amazing seasonings out of organ meats. And if you're someone like me who wants to incorporate organ meats into your diet because you know how good they are for you, but the idea of eating raw liver or, you know, a la liver king kind of eating raw bull testicles and all that crap he does that, hey, God bless him. He's making a fortune, and he's very famous on social media and stuff and gets to wear Viking hats, pulling handsome cabs through New York City, and that's neat. Uh, but I'm just not down with you – know, it. Just it's hard for me to get my brain around eating all that crap raw. So this company, Pluck, that James Berry has founded, who is a, a, a chef of 17 years, so it's not just like he came up with this idea, oh, I'll uh, – I'll just, you know, freeze dry some organ meats and grind it up and call it spices. No, it's, and I had some last night, a little uh, secret I did last night. I uh, made some, a little avocado salad and I took the, I think it's called the uh, garlic. It's the, it was something else. Um, mm, darn it. I wish I could remember the exact name of it, but it was the garlic flavored spice. It comes in a green package at, um, I think it's at eatpluck.com if you want to check it out. I put that in our little avocado salad, and Mrs. Wright loved it on the ribeye tacos I made last night. She had no idea until after we were through eating. I said, what would you think of that guacamole salad? She said, it was delicious. So, well, you know, you had some spleen, some liver, some heart in that with uh, with the uh, meal. And she's like, you've got to be kidding me right now. As a no, you actually did. And she didn't even know it. It was that good. So some good conversations. So next couple of weeks, got a couple of really good interviews uh, to listen to. And then um, I will be talking to, I think it's next week, uh, Matt Camberline, Dr. Matt Camberline, who is a researcher at the University of Washington, just a wicked smart guy on nutrition. And he was on Peter Atiyah's show not too long ago. And I, I was just blown away by his knowledge and what he had to say with Dr. Tia. And so I reached out and he's coming on the show. I can't wait for that conversation. And one of the main things we're going to be talking about is rapamycin. So rapamycin, it, it's one of these that for, for the, the person that doesn't study this stuff in depth, they, they, they want, everybody wants a pill to stay young, stay healthy or whatever. And rapamycin is one of those that if you're not careful, people think it's a panacea for, for all things longevity but it's really not, but it does have some incredible benefits. The, the, the issue is uh, it does have some side effects that scare off the FDA, kind of like metformin. People want to take metformin uh, that don't have diabetes because of some of the, the positive impact it can have. So there are some of these drugs that, that, that people are looking at for longevity and better health that have not traditionally been used. And here's the thing that's changed. Here's the shift that's uh, taking place. And I, 
I don't know if this is correct, but I know it's what brought into my understanding of how we treat aging as a disease. David Sinclair, who wrote the book Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have to, I believe I've got that subtitle correct. I know Lifespan is the, is the, uh, is the main title. <clears throat> he is the one who I first learned of that had this concept of treating aging as a disease. And it's, it's, it's crazy because we don't talk much about it. We never think of it like that. We just kind of think of, well, aging is just a part of life, right? And it is. But all of the markers and all of the things that happen as a result of aging are similar to any other disease. So we're all diagnosed with the same disease known as aging. However, we don't tend to treat aging as a disease. Instead, what we do is we treat the symptoms of aging, like different cancers and, and cardiovascular disease and, and plaque buildup and all these different things. So what's happening right now, thanks to guys like uh, Dr. Camberline, David Sinclair, he, he's a Ph.D. researcher at Harvard, uh, Peter Tia, who's probably the rock star physician of the moment, who you all hear me talk about him all the time. Uh, his Drive podcast is fantastic. I recommend you subscribe to it. I'm actually a subscriber for the uh, to get behind the paywall uh, content. It's that good and it's that meaningful, and I've learned that much from him. But all of these physicians and researchers, they're trying to figure out ways to, to not only extend life. That's one of the things that the medical community has done really well is we've been able to extend life longer. But what we haven't been able to do is figure out a way to extend life healthier, Right. So just because you can live to be 90, 93, 95, hell, 100, but you get there and your knees are shot, your 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 heart is not operating you know, properly. You can't walk up a flight of stairs. You, you can't play with your grandkids or, you know, God willing, your great grandkids. Then what's the point? So what these researchers are doing is they're really trying to add some quality of life to longevity. And I think that is really important. So I, I'm so excited about that conversation, and then I've got some other great uh, conversations teed up. We just got to put them on the schedule, and uh, so lots happening to wind up the year here at the Jason Wright Show. So I wanted to, so he, you probably saw how I titled this. I haven't even put the title in there yet, but I, I titled it, or I plan on titling it, and by the time this airs, I will have already put that in there, is that I will never get married again. I think it's the dumbest decision that anyone can make. That is a quote that Jason Wright said. That's something I said uh, about four or five years ago, uh, it, that marriage was something I didn't see the value in. I would never do it. And I can tell you it was one of the most backwards, ignorant, stupid things I could have ever said. And I'm a living result of that because um, I have, as you all know, I mean, you you hear me. If there's one thing that's consistent on this podcast that – I talk about it's my love of Mrs. Wright. I have the most amazing wife, life partner, just supporter, cheerleader, uh, just on earth. And I am 100% a better man as a result of my marriage to Jimlin. It's just, it's, it's, there's no doubt. There's no dispute. And so, I was reading, I got this fantastic book. It's called Adrift. It's by Scott Galloway. I heard Scott Galloway recently on a podcast and who he is. He's an NYU professor and he, he, he's a tenured professor at NYU and teaches in the, in the MBAs. He's a graduate school professor. 
teaches business. And what he's kind of known for is digging in at and looking at statistics of what, you know, why are things happening and what are some trends that we need to be aware of. And he's just a brilliant guy. I, check out his work. And so I bought his book called Adrift and it's um, America in a hundred charts. And what it is, it's just a, basically a book of statistics to kind of show you in a one slide flash what's going on in America. And one of the things that is happening in America that is not good is marriage rates are now at record lows. And I think the reason why is because a lot of people have the attitude that I had. Either they had done it, had a horrible experience, and were like, I'm never going to, you know, that's, the, that's a hot stove I'm never going to touch again. Or they just decide, why would I do this? I have a dog, I have a great apartment, I make a lot of money. I'm in my 30s and 40s. I'm good. Why would I ever sign on to that? Why would I ever submit to another person, which that's, you know, that, that whole idea is counter to everything we're being taught in, in society right now, right? Because it's all about you, 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 baby. You, it, you do you, you do you, you live your truth. It is all you. You worship at the altar of you. And then while you're doing it, make sure you capture it on the gram. So things are not really going in such a way that they would promote marriage. And that could be a problem. So here's what uh, is written in this book, right? That's one of the things that uh, Galloway notes is that marriage rates in the U.S. on the decline for decades hit an all-time low in 2020 of 5.1 per thousand people. That's lower than the 7.9 reported in 1932 during the Great Depression. The marriage rate has fallen faster and faster at lower income levels. From 1970 to 2011, men in the bottom third of incomes were, third, were over 30% less likely to get married, while marriage rates for men in the 85th percentile and higher dropped less than 15%. Women at lower income rates have experienced significant but slightly lower declines than men, while higher income earning women have hardly seen their marriage rates decline at all. For women earning the top 1% of income, it actually increased over the period. Theirs was the only income cohort to see a rise in matrimony. Now, I want to say something about this because it's a really scary statistic there. If you are, this is, okay, the, the men in the bottom third of incomes were over 30% less likely to get married. Now, do you think that it's because a guy that's making, you know, $25,000, a year, driving a backhoe. Actually, if he's driving a backhoe, he's probably making more than that. But nevertheless, that some guy that's not making a ton of money, doesn't have a college degree, has just decided, you know, I love this life. I love working, breaking my back five days a week, and so there's no way I'm getting married. Or do you think that it's because women, they get to have their choice, and they're constantly, very wisely looking for the, 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 the partner that's going to give them the most in terms of economic stability to match their income. That has a, they, the bottom line is women have the pick of the litter. What's going on right now and what these statistics are showing is that if you are a man and you are in the bottom 30%, it's not just because you are choosing to not get married. It's because you are just not getting chosen as a mate, and it's a real problem. Marriage is a powerful institution. I'm going back to the, the what, what Galloway's writing here. Marriage is a powerful institution. It gives us a partner economically, emotionally, and logistically. 
Two people form a more efficient household and build a stronger foundation that consistently proves to produce better outcomes for children. A household of unmarried parents makes just two-thirds of the income a married couple makes. Married couples, married couple, excuse me, married people have better health insurance, as do their kids, and greater access to social networks via their spouse. So not surprisingly, they tend to live longer, experience fewer strokes and heart attacks, and have a lower incidence of depression. You know, one of the things that was, and this is, you know, talking to the boys out there, one of the things that we men tend to do is isolate. I did this. I mean, whenever I was single for five years, I pretty much was alone all the time. Uh, especially as the as the girls got older, Ryle and Abby, they're they're doing their thing. And there is a difference between loneliness and solitude. Solitude can be very beneficial, and I actually loved solitude in that time. But I can tell you this: being in isolation, being alone, and not having someone to one hold you accountable to just inspire you to want to be better, to be the best version of yourself. That's good. That's a problem. And I mean, the health benefits, every statistic seems to bear this out, that, that, that marriage makes you live longer, happier, and healthier than being single for long periods of time. And here's what it came to for me. And, and some of you who are perpetually single, you, you, the bachelors, I, I guess I'm talking to you primarily is that, you know, for me, what happened was I was in this moment where I was content to be alone for the rest of my life, but I was early 40s, right? And what what really occurred to me one day was is actually whenever uh, someone recommended that I you know, try to meet Jimlin, was this was easy to think, right? At the time, I was like 42, I think. And I was like, this is, it's okay to have this attitude now. But what happens if I wake up and I'm 65, I'm 70, and I decide, man, life would sure be a lot more fun if I had somebody to live it with, to talk to, to experience with, to share experiences, to, to, to focus on, to, to sacrifice for, to give myself to, to look to other than just looking at my own fulfillment, my own happiness. And that's whenever I took the step to go, okay, let's just go, let me see if this girl will have coffee with me. And, you know, she became my wife. And so I think it's, it's important to look at your life for not just in the now, but also think about what might become and just you don't have to get married you don't have to look at these things and go oh in order for me to be happy I must get married in order for me to be healthy and live longer I must get married that's that's not exactly what I'm saying for sure but the bottom line is it's worth taking into the it's worth having that calculus to consider as you're as you're determining and those of you who are married if you are are not happy, if you think that you're having troubles and you think that divorce is the key and that being alone, because how many times, God, how many times do you see on television where they portray the, the married couple as just miserable? You know, the, they have the, the guy get along with the, the other guys, they're playing poker and they just talk about their wives as though they're just these, it's just horrible and their kids are always nagging them or whatever. And so, you have this reinforcement that marriage is such a horrible, horrible institution. Why the hell would anybody do it? But I can tell you, you, you should probably, instead of thinking that the grass is greener in the single pastures, make it work where you are. Learn how to be loving and giving and, 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 and nurture the partnership you currently have because you will be healthier, you will be happier, you will live longer if you are willing 
to make that relationship work. So uh, here's another thing I found that's <clears throat> pretty interesting. Going kind of what I was saying earlier, women value earning potential in male partners. In a 2017 survey, over two-thirds of Americans, both men and women, said it's very important for a man to support his family financially to be considered a good partner. By contrast, only 25% of men say financial security is very important for a woman to be a good wife or partner. 39% of women feel that way. The bottom line, we put dramatically different emphasis on men's and women's earning power. So that's, <clears throat> that's one of the things that society, it's weird, in this incredible era where my daughters get to go and have in their mind that I can be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, which my grandmother did not have that. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. And I'm not going to get into the whole, you know, different uh, waves of feminism or anything like that. I'm just saying I like the fact that my daughters essentially have every single opportunity to succeed that I as a male have had uh, throughout my, my life. That's a really awesome thing for a dad of, of daughters. And just in, in general, it's just it's a great thing, right? However, society has not shifted as to, it's like, we're glad that they have that opportunity, but still, where does the expectation fall? As men, we still expect ourselves to be able to provide for a family, and we, and we take that on and, and, and expect that. But not only that, women surveyed consider that a strong measure of a man's uh, you know, desirability, but they don't consider that a woman should be expected to take care of the family financially. So the expectations are completely different, which is causing, you know, I, it's, it's just, and I just say that just because it's weird and it, for all the talk of, you know, um, women having, you know, the, the patriarchy and all these different things. Again, I don't want to dive down that rabbit hole, but I'm just telling you, society, it's, it, for example, it's, if, if, you're, if you were to try to tell me that it's still, that it's just as acceptable for a man to be the one that stays at home and tend to the house, which there's nothing wrong with that. That's the thing. On a micro level, there is nothing wrong with that. It is honorable if a man stays home, raises the children, and the wife goes out. I've seen this happen. The wife goes out. She's the powerful executive, brings home the bacon. Fine. On the micro level, cool. But on the macro, when you zoom out a little bit, society's not ready for that. Society is, has not said that, oh, yeah, that's just a perfectly normal thing. And so as a result, there's just some trickiness to this whole what's going on in, in couples. I think, And I think a lot of this – the marriage rates being lower, I think we've, as we've confused things as to different roles in society and who does what and who takes this on, uh, again, not saying good or bad necessarily. I'm just saying as we are kind of redefining roles in society, I think a lot of people are just going, I'm just not going to play. I'm just not going to, I'm just going to take care of me. And that's a bad thing. We don't want to get to a society where we're all just like, hey, you do you, I'll do me. I'm just going to take care of myself. Survival of the fittest. I just don't think that's good. And the data shows that that's not really a good thing. Men's share of college enrollment is at record lows. We hear this a lot about, uh, you know, how, again, with regard to career advancement and how men have much better opportunity, more opportunities in life. Well, here's, here's something I find very interesting. 
In 2021, men accounted, and this is also, before I read this, Scott Galloway points out something incredibly important in this, in this study and why this is such a problem. And I think I talked about this not too long ago, and I'm going to be talking, I know I wrote about it in the Vitruvian letter, that there is a, there is a male crisis in America as far as men understanding what their place is in society, as society just trying to define what a man's role is in society. I mean, on the one hand, uh, a man needs to take a step back and make way for others to to take their their jobs or their places that they traditionally held, but at the same time, he still needs to expect to be sacrificed in war or to go down into a mine shaft. So it's like, hey, we want you to continue to sacrifice yourself to the point of death, possibly, but also on the, the 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 safer side of things, we want you to give that up if you would. So it's it's kind of a weird weird time for males, and it's causing a crisis. And here's another example of this: in 2021, men accounted for 40 percent of college enrollments, down from nearly 60 percent in 1970. In the 2018-19 academic year, more than 1.1 million women received a bachelor's degree, which is awesome. However, Fewer than 860,000 men received a bachelor's degree. Fewer men going to college means fewer men on pathways to economic prosperity. More men getting off the ladder to prosperity means more men getting on the path to becoming what I consider, not me, Scott Galloway, um, becoming what I consider the most dangerous cohort in America. Broke, lonely, males. And here's the thing about it. Broke, lonely males don't just make for dangerous, miserable, suicidal, violent men, but they make for a lot less likely partners for women. So women's choice of men, now they still get the cream of the crop. Those that survive, those men that break out and are in that top percentile, the women still have most of the pick, men do not get to necessarily have as great of a, a of choice in the matter. But it's going to make for a problem when we have fewer and fewer men to choose from, more and more women going after the same pool of quote-unquote viable males. And then we <clears throat> also have this pool. You know, we were told once upon a time, I remember hearing that um, you, uh, a lot of the reason why we had terrorists in the Middle East is because these men were disillusioned. They were listless. They had no job. They had low unemployment. I mean, we had our news commentators blaming lack of opportunity as to why these men were becoming terrorists. Now, I'm not saying that men who are uneducated, financially not viable, undesirable to women are going to necessarily become terrorists, but what you can see is that these individuals do have higher rates of alcoholism. They are more violent. They're frustrated. A, a, a man lacking purpose, any human lacking purpose, is someone who is, is dangerous to society because they just, I mean, a frustrated, angry individual is not good for the whole. So it's interesting. We've got some things going on that um, just I think it's worth paying attention to and how we fix it. I don't know. We got to come together. I think that part of the thing is to 
you know, realize that some of those things that we have started to bash, some of those uh, somewhat uh, traditional ideas of marriage, relationships, instead of just constantly making marriage uh, in the in, and having a quote-unquote uh, traditional nuclear family, instead of just continuing to make it passe and a punchline, and maybe we make, we take a look at the data to say, hmm, there's something good about that, and there's something that we've lost and that we're continuing to lose, and what are the ramifications of that? As we go, I mean, we are, we are in the midst of redefining everything. We're redefining society. Uh, we're redefining uh, gender. We're redefining what's up and what's down, what's sideways. We're, we're redefining all sorts of things right now, and that's a tricky thing. I think as we go through that, it's very important to look at the data because here's the cool thing. Data doesn't care. Data data measures what's really happening versus what we want to happen. And so I just think that's important. I think it was it's a great book. Uh, I'm going to include probably some uh, some articles on some of the data. It's going to cause me to dig a little deeper on the data uh, to find out kind of what's going on. I, just, I think uh, – sociological uh, findings are fun just to dig in, just to kind of, and to prepare. I, I encourage all of you, hey, check out what's happening in society. Check, go find some data, dig in, and figure out what is happening so that you can actually correct, you, know, you maybe it'll change your mind if you go, oh, wait a minute, I've been told this one thing is happening, that this is a great, great thing, that's wonderful, or that this group is really, really hurting while ignoring another group that might be hurting just as bad or worse, you know, and, and, and that's another thing too. <clears throat> if we are so laser focused on the promotion of one group at the neglect of another and at the detriment of another, the net of that is probably not going to be good. Uh, I, I, I long for, and my idea is to improve society always and always for everyone, that we all look at each other with love and go, hey, I want you to go crush it, but I don't want you to crush it at the expense of that guy or that girl. I don't want that, that person. Let's all get into this together. And so, anyway, that's just my little Best Friday Ever rant. I hope you have had a great week. It's a great Friday. The weather's beautiful. It's the fall is in the air. It's so money. I love this. And, you know, I was going to call my buddy Josh, but he's got rehab. I want Josh on here more Friday. So Tomlin, get yourself well. Uh, and he's got a he's got a little knee knee issue. He's trying to get healed up. So maybe next Friday we'll have my boy JT back to talk about the baseball playoffs. But until then, have a great week next week and uh continuing to improve always and always. I'm Jason and I'm out.